Welcome to the Relational Recovery Podcast. I'm your host, Wes Thompson, joined by my co-host, Austin Hill. Today, we're in part four in our conversation. We hope you enjoy. Yeah. So, Matthew, like, we just, like, you are speaking from personal experience that Wes and I do not have. So, what is, like, if you had to say, like, this is my, this is my story and how I ended up at the refuge the first time. Yeah, I would say the the catalyst was discontentment. I, it's it was almost like the perfect storm, okay. And so, what's ironic is, and we want to talk about, you know, a disease and you know some of the the viewpoints that have been out there. Is just like, you know, is it genetics? Is it nature and nurture? Is it you know what you know? Were you born this way? And so, you know, for me. Um, I've always hated that viewpoint of just like, oh, there's genetically, there's something wrong with you. And, you know, I think there's some validity there, but I think it's a very small piece of the pie. Um, and so ironically for myself, um, in high school, I got, a, I got injured and was given a, a two-week script of Percocets. And I remember taking them and being like, oh, you know, these make you kind of feel kind of groovy and cool. And, um, but you know, after I was done with this script, I never thought twice about trying to find Percocet again, or let, let me take that again, or you're even sometimes, you know, high school parties, you know, there's stuff around. I was just like, oh, well, you know, I don't really need that, you know? And then fast forward, uh, my first semester in college, I got a really bad case of mono and like my, my throat swelled up, my tonsils swelled up so bad. And they gave me again, they, I think they gave me Vicodin to help with the pain of trying to swallow. Like I couldn't even eat food out of basically just drink. Um, and again, I remember, you know, taking them and thinking, okay, this makes you feel good. And then, you know, the script was over and I never thought about it again. Um, and all through high school and all through college, you know, it's like, I had a lot of friends that, you know, you did drugs and constantly smoked weed and, you know, I was always at parties and, you know, I drank, but I never really felt like I needed drugs. You know, I was just like, oh, I'll just, you know, have a couple of beers and have a great time. And that's all I really need it. Do you feel like your parents were support were like, did you feel supported? Like, like, cause I, I think when I like breaking down the, the stigma and be, I'm asking this because I, I, I kind of know the answer, but there's this assumption that someone who gets trapped in addiction, comes from this like tragically broken family. And I don't know if I would describe your family like that. No, I mean, I think my family, I mean, my story is not, it's, it is atypical a little bit as far as like, you know, my family is one of the, the best gifts that I've been given in, in just the culture that I come from and the French and the Italian culture. It's very family oriented. Um, and that's something that's just ingrained in you from a very young age of just like family comes first. It's also just part of the reason why I never thought I could put God above anything else because it was so drilled into me that like it's like almost like family then God. Um, but we were dysfunctional. I mean, there's a lot of love there, but it's dysfunctional. And so I say I'll start with this. So you're like, it was like most other families. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before I was born, um, my older brother was diagnosed with uh, leukemia when he was in seventh grade and, um, you know, went through all the processes and, you know, it started getting bad to where he was going to need a bone marrow transplant. And so with that, they always start with the immediate family to find a genetic match to see if there's someone that's genetically matched to do a, a transfer. And of course there wasn't. And then they move on to the extended family and nobody was a match. And so he went on a donor's list um, and, and things started getting really bad. And um, as you can imagine, you know, with you guys being parents, you know, I think the last thing 
on my parents' mind was we're going to get pregnant, you know? And so, but my parents got pregnant and I was born and, you know, the doctors immediately did a genetic testing and I was a hundred percent genetic match. Um, and so I was one of the youngest kids, um, ever to do a bone marrow transplant. I was not even two years old yet. And, um, did a, did a transplant and it worked and my brother went to remission and, you know, all was well. And of course I don't remember any of that, but a few, he went back to high school and, you know, started playing sports again. And, you know, I think at the end of his sophomore or junior year, he just came home and was just like, it's, I think it's back. I can just, I feel off and I feel like how I felt the first time. So it was true. You know, he had leukemia, came back and this time I think I was somewhere closer to four and, you know, we did another transplant and this, I remember, you know, we used to live at the Ronald McDonald house. Cause you know, we, we had a lot of love in our family, but we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and so we stayed at Ronald McDonald's house. We, sometimes we traveled a family. We lived in Houston and lived with my mom's sister. Um, so anyhow, at this point, you know, I was constantly told, you know, that, oh, you're the miracle baby and you're here to save your brother. You know, you're, it's, this is going to work again. And so I never really thought about this my whole life until a little bit before the refuge of just subconsciously what that did to me. Um, anyhow, uh, just to fast forward a little bit, you know, my brother ended up passing away. We did the transplant. It, um, it, it took a little bit, um, but he ended up having just like a brain hemorrhage um, and he passed away. And I remember, you know, being like, you know, what did I do wrong? Or, you know, was it my fault? And, you know, I had a, a phenomenal grandmother who's probably the strongest person I ever met and was very wise. And she spent a lot of time with me through my younger years, kind of combating that. And she would always just say like, you know, you gave your parents time, you know, yes, your brother passed away, but he would have passed away a long time ago. And you gave your parents another close to five years, five and a half years with their son. And that was your purpose, not, you know, saving your brother. But subconsciously, I think, you know, sometimes I think personally, that's why I'm a two. That's why I try so hard to love other people and save everybody and serve everyone. Cause it was just like kind of ingrained to me as a, as a young kid. Um, and so, and then fast forward, you know, it's just like, my, my dad was a very much disengaged father. He was present, but he was disengaged. Um, and that always affected me. And uh, my mom was a big believer in the education system. And so she worked an extra job to send me to Catholic school. Um, and I went to St. Paul's in Westerville, which was a very nice area. And so all of my friends were very well off. And, you know, I grew up for the first 13 years of my life. We lived in an apartment. And so, you know, I would hang out with my friends and, you know, I'd stay over at their house and, you know, their dads were, you know, my dad had to work multiple jobs because, well, you know, when their son died, they had to go to work on Monday because they had bills and they had, a, you know, still had a, me and my sister. And so I was experiencing dads that were off on the weekends and would take us to Clippers games and arcades and play football with us and all these things. And I just wondered, like, why is my dad not doing that? You know, as a child, you don't understand bills and responsibilities. All you'd be like is, well, my dad's never around. And if he is, he's sleeping, you know, but he's sleeping because he just, he's working a second job. Uh, so that developed a complex over time. Um, and I remember, you know, being angry because I, I taught myself a lot of things, how to ride a bike, how to throw a football, how to do all these things. And I held that against my father because I always thought that was, you know, his responsibility. Fast forward the high school, found out that, you know, my father had an affair for close to 10 years. Um, and so that, um, 
you know, created obviously more internal damage with me and just also how I viewed my father. Um, and so I think that had a factor to play just kind of leading up to my addiction. And so I guess really long circle there is just like, you know, got exposed to opiates twice, you know, didn't take the bait and then fast forward to probably my mid twenties. Um, and, uh, like I said, I was discontent where I was cause you know, going to college, I was just like, Oh, I'm going to have all these things when I'm 24 and graduate, I'm going to have this type of job and this type of car and this type of house. And it wasn't that I had a bad job. I just wasn't where I thought I would be. Um, and also you just got out of a bad relationship and with my job, I was working in a restaurant then, um, and I was on my feet for a long time, standing on concrete. My back always hurt. And of course, one of my good buddies, you know, was doing pills and gave me a pill. And this time it was medicine. You know, it just didn't make me feel better. It made me numb everything else that I was discontent about with my life. Um, and so, you know, back then, I don't think I ever took the bait because I was, I loved who I was. I had goals and ambitions. And, you know, when that, script was done. I didn't need it anymore because I loved who I was and I had the whole world in front of me. But then fast forward to when I was 25 and it was like, I say it was the perfect storm because, you know, I wasn't happy with who I was. I wasn't happy where I was. I was discontent. I just got out of bad relationships. So like I said, this time when I took it, it took all those feelings away and it became medicine. And then I started doing it more and more. And then it'd be like, we talked about habit, it turned into a habit, you know, for the longest time, it was only like I was taking it a few a week. And then it was only like, I was just going to take it on the weekend. And then I started selling Percocet. And this is back in like, you know, 2008 and 2009 with like the pill mills and, you know, everything that we know now about, you know, what big pharma did and, you know, the, the information that they put out, the same thing they were telling doctors was the same thing that was being said on the streets was just like, oh, this isn't really that bad. And we all just really equate it like to you know doing marijuana and even when i was selling them i was just like oh i'm not this is just like marijuana i'm not selling crack or cocaine or heroin and but then slowly you started noted changes in people and i started thinking maybe there's something to this um and at that point this is probably about a, a year into it, and I'm, at that point i was taking them every single day and i was taking a lot of them thanks for listening to this episode of the relational recovery podcast we'll be back tomorrow with part five in our conversation we'll see you then 